I was a young pastor in my first call after seminary. I was the associate and youth pastor in a growing suburban church, and um, Megan and I arrived there with our little two-and-a-half-year-old firstborn, Grady, and um, before long, he was joined quickly by two more, by our twins, uh, Cooper and Kelly. Uh, needless to say, life was just a little bit, little bit crazy um, with three little ones and running a youth ministry. The local newspaper had a weekly faith column uh, that was written by local pastors, and I was invited to submit an article in the midst of all of this, and I wrote, out, wrote, wrote about the, the busyness and the craziness of doing youth ministry in a church and, and parenting with my wife, three children under the age of four. And I, in that, I, I gave testimony to my faith, and my church is giving me the strength to, to really get through this, this season that was a wonderful season, but, but stressful. I thought it was a pretty good article, actually. I was pretty proud of myself. And, but it wasn't long after it came out that I, I got an article, I got a, a letter from another older pastor in the community, probably somebody about my age now, um, uh, who, who called me out on this article. He, he was calling me out on not taking better advantage of this opportunity to proclaim Christ in a newspaper posting. I was a, I was a little stunned. I was a little, little hurt, but... Uh, I will never forget the scripture that he quoted me to make his point that I ought to proclaim Christ more boldly. It comes from Paul as he speaks to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, where Paul says, I resolved, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I resolved to know nothing among you while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In a sense, what this pastor was saying was, be more like Paul. Be like, more like Paul with this laser focus was the message that was given to me. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus Christ and him crucified is really what is at the core of our faith. Jesus, uh, God in the flesh, taking away our sins that we might be forgiven and then reconciled to God. That we might then know the fullness of life and join God in his purposes in the world. To make Christ known and him crucified. So what we're heading for, heading towards here as we are looking towards Holy Week in about four weeks. We are in the season of Lent. Today is the third Sunday in Lent. We spent the first two weeks of Lent really looking at our call to, to join God in caring for, reaching, caring for and reaching our neighborhoods and world, the neighborhoods and world for which he died. But now for these next four Sundays, we will look to Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus Christ and him crucified and asked the question, what happened on the cross? What happened on the cross? Now, if we allowed time for audience response, which I won't because pastors like to have complete control when they're preaching, uh, but seriously, <laughs> if we did allow time for response we would, uh, in dialogue, we would hear any number of combinations of, of, of answers, uh, uh, all of which would be true, uh, of Jesus dying in my place, Jesus defeating death and the devil, Jesus carrying my sins to the cross. The blood of Jesus covering my sins. Jesus, the image of the Lamb of God, the suffering servant. From some we would hear of God's wrath that needed to be appeased, and from others we would hear more of God's love reaching to us on the cross. From some, some we might actually hear an honest, I'm just not sure how to explain it, I just know that he died on the cross and my sins are forgiven. Listen to the different words and concepts that even come in this morning's scripture reading that Rose just read for us, Romans 5, 1 through 11. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that's something that happened there, justified by faith, we have 
peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, whom we have gained access by faith in this grace in which we now stand. We boast in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but we glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through his spirit. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, what happened? Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. And then here's this key verse 5, or verse 8 of chapter 5. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It goes on. Since we've now been justified by his blood, there's a clue, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? Not only this is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received this reconciliation. See, there's a lot going on there, isn't there? Just in that passage. A lot of different words that speak about what happened on the cross, what happened in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Lots to grasp, lots to understand. But what I see holding it all together and giving it purpose is the overarching love and plan of God. But God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so in the title that I chose for this series, not only do we have the question, what happened on the cross, but I've added something here from the initial words of John 3.16. For God so loved the world. What happened on the cross? For God so loved the world that, of course, that he gave. He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So in answering this question about the cross and how God loves us and moves towards us, what we will be attempting to understand and explain over these next four weeks is what we call the atonement. Atonement. Actually, that's a one-word answer to our question. What happened on the cross? The atonement. Done. (laughs) But we're going to try to explain a little bit, understand what the atonement is. Atonement has its roots in the Old Testament, the the, the day of atonement you may have heard of. uh, That one day when the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies and offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people. The Old Testament roots in the sacrifices and rituals of of Israel, the day of atonement, the the scapegoat upon whom all the sins were laid and it ran out into the wilderness. All of these images of sacrifice and scapegoat and atonement all prefigure or look ahead to the fullness that would come in Jesus Christ. And so what does atonement mean? Well, a simple definition is the atonement is the saving work of Jesus. The atonement speaks of the saving work of Jesus. Atonement in the Old Testament anticipated it. And it comes to a reality in Jesus. But a little fuller definition uh, defines atonement as the saving work that God did through Christ to reconcile the world to himself. This element of reconciliation. See, there's the key. To reconcile means healing a broken relationship, right? When we reconcile, we've been at odds. We were one at one time, but we've been at odds. But then reconciliation brings us back together. The relationship is broken. We are estranged, and yet something happens to bring two parties back together. Sometimes amends have to be made. Sometimes there are reparations. In fact, but, every, but thing, everything works to bring things back together to one. In fact, the English word, atonement, to develop, to translate the Old Testament concept actually means at one meant. We are at one. 
something happens to make us one again. And so this word was actually coined. Atonement comes from adding et, one, and meant. Making what was once one when we were created in this perfect world that God created in Eden was once one and then seriously broken and damaged by the fall into sin, bringing it back together again. Backed at one, to be one again. So in answering the question, what happened on the cross, we will be attempting to better understand the atonement. What did God do to bring us back and reconcile us? While there is much rich biblical input and imagery for the atonement, one easy explanation is not all that easy to come up with because there's a vast number of references and images given to uh, uh, a variety of ways that the scripture speaks of the atonement. Theologians call these models of atonement or theories of atonement. Some even say some of them are, are more like a metaphor, like a courtroom becomes a metaphor, or the marketplace when we speak of redeeming, buying something, becomes a, a metaphor for what happens. And so these models, theories, metaphors are ways to explain in human terms the grand and sometimes mysterious truth of God. Now sometimes mystery is used as a cop-out saying, I don't understand it, so I'll just call it a mystery. <laughs> We can dig deep into understanding the atonement, but ultimately there is a bit of mystery as to how this really happens. But there are different theories and atone, uh, different theories and models. As you might imagine, over the centuries since the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, there have been several different theories developed, several debates, and I know this comes as a surprise in the church. There actually have been disagreements over which one is right and which one ought to be most important. Which one best describes what happened? Which one best answers the question, what happened on the cross? Well, there are many. They kind of all fall somewhat around three different perspectives. Uh, If we ask the question, who is the subject or who is the object of the atoning work of Christ? I'll be referring uh, to a a book in this series called The Nature of Atonement, Four Views. And there's four evangelical theologians, biblical scholars who write from four different perspectives and then they respond to each other to try to get at the truth together. In the introduction to this book, the editors say this, in essence, each of these paradigms, they call them paradigms, when I just confuse you with models, theories, and metaphors, they say paradigms, okay? But they say, in essence, each of these paradigms focuses the primary emphasis of the atonement in a different direction. That is, each paradigm sees the central thrust of the work of Christ as designed to address a different fundamental problem that stands in the way of salvation, okay? Let me try to explain a little bit the three kind of general areas and the references that they use. One paradigm model theory (laughs) approach sees the problem to be dealt with as Satan. And therefore, it is a Satan word, if you will, focus. The death of Christ brought a divine victory over the power of darkness and evil. The death of Christ brought a, a victory over evil. The death of Christ, Christ on the cross, releases from our enslavement to sin. See that? A ransom has been paid to secure our freedom and to buy us back out of this bondage. To set us free from the clutches of Satan. Jesus said in Mark 10.45, The Son of Man did not come to be served, 
but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Just one of many verses that supports this view of, of ransom or of the victory of Christ, for example. So it's a Satan word focus of Satan is defeated by Christ on the cross. Another perspective sees the problem that has to be dealt with that blocks us in salvation, a, a human word focus. That is, the atoning work of Christ is designed to affect a change in us, to, to, to change something in human beings. In this, view, in this view, we find more emphasis on the love of God, and we hear themes of healing and restoration happen in this view of human word. God moves to heal. God moves to restore us. God moves to change our hearts by his love. This view finds its center often in the verse we just read in the middle of today's reading, that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. Why we were still sinners, Christ died for us so that he might heal us, restore us, and bring us back into relationship. We have Satan word, we have human word, and another, and perhaps the most familiar uh, perspective we may hear in evangelical churches is what we would say has a God word focus. That is, the work of Christ primarily addresses a, a necessary demand of God, a demand of God's justice. Here we hear themes of substitution or sacrifice, justification, we hear themes of a penalty and a price that needs to be paid, of punishment, and we even begin to hear legal court imagery of a judge and a hearing and a declaration of guilt or not. We hear it in Paul's words uh, to the Corinthians, where he says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So, how are we doing? Are we confused or intrigued? Okay. Should I keep going? Okay, all right. Some of you note-takers will be happy to know that I finally put an outline back in the bulletin. I'm looking directly at Diane Quiliana, who always fills hers out. But, so I'm hoping to write some of these things down in these weeks so you'll kind of know what's coming. My goal is for us to learn uh, from each of these different perspectives and also then to, to see and appreciate the wonder of this gift, the wonder of this, this grace, to see and appreciate more deeply this forgiveness and be inspired then, not only to say, I, I, I've got it for me, but to be inspired to live into this reconciled relationship with God through an active living walk with Jesus. That's my hope through this. M. Griffin has been a popular professor of communication at Wheaton College for almost ever because he was there when we were there 45 years ago, and he's still there as Professor Emeritus. But M. Griffin's a pretty amazing professor of communication and writer. In his book, Making Friends, he writes about three kinds of London maps. Okay, Matt, some of you remember what maps are those? Yeah, okay. He says there's three kinds of London maps. The street map, the map depicting the throughways, and the underground map of the subway. Each map is accurate and correct, he writes, but each map does not give the complete picture. To see the whole, the three maps must be printed on top of one another. However, that is often confusing, so I use only one layer at a time. Griffin goes on to say, it is the same with the words used to describe the death of Jesus Christ. Each word, like redemption, reconciliation, or justification, is accurate and correct. But each word does not give the complete picture. To see the whole, we need to place one layer on top of the other. But that is sometimes confusing. We cannot see the trees for the whole. So we separate out each splendid concept 
and discover that the whole is more than the sum of the parts. And that's what we want to do with these perspectives on atonement. So this is what I, the point that I want to make in these weeks. There are several biblical ways in which to understand and explain the atonement. There's obviously non-biblical ways too, but we don't care about those. We're looking at the biblical ways, okay? There's several biblical ways in which to understand and explain the atonement, the saving work of Christ on the cross. In and through them all, God moves towards us in love so that we might not only be forgiven and reconciled to him as individuals. Here's the important part. Not only that we're forgiven as individuals, but that the church might become a community of faith marked by grace, reconciliation, and participation in the kingdom work. If we only understand atonement and its value for me, we've not done all of our work. It always has to be, what does it say, not only to me as an individual, but to us as a church as we address this world in need. And so that's what we hope to do in these weeks ahead. So in our remaining time, I just want to take a closer look at that third view I mentioned. Perhaps what is most familiar to us, this God-word perspective. Earlier I quoted from Paul in 2 Corinthians where he says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. From this we get the concept of substitution. That there was a substitution of Jesus in our place. He was sinless, but he became sin and died in our place so that we could be declared righteous. He died in our place so that we could be declared acceptable to God once again and be back in that relationship. We also hear of this concept of substitution in one of the the greatest Old Testament prophecies of Jesus and the cross in Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah writes, He was despised and rejected of mankind, a, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Now we have not only this idea of substitution, but we hear this theme of punishment. Punishment from this and and other passages, it's concluded that because of our sin, we deserve punishment, and we deserve the punishment of death. God's system of justice needs to be be consistent, and so to to satisfy the demands of God's justice, we uh, deserve death. We have the sentence of death, you might say. Romans 3.23 says, the wages of sin is death. But Jesus, the only sinless human ever to live, steps in and becomes a substitute and takes the punishment of all humankind. Jesus pays the penalty. Certainly we can see this in many of these passages, but another important part of why we call this a God-word view is because it recognizes not only the satisfaction of God's justice, but also what we say is the appeasing of God's wrath, God's holy anger. God is perfect and holy. There is no room for any unholiness in the presence of God. And there's no way then we can be at one with him because of our broken condition. And in his holiness, the scriptures around this are interpreted as saying that God's wrath then is burning. There's a God's holy anger. God, perfect and holy, is angry at our sin. He's angry at our sin and his justice seeks retribution. There's a punishment and a penalty needs to be paid. 
to appease or to ward off the wrath of God. Over the centuries, and particularly at the time of the Reformation, 15th, 16th century, this view took on more and more of some courtroom metaphors. Uh, the, the, the Reformation obviously was a time of great religious change with the uh, Protestants breaking away from the Catholic Church and developing all kinds of different uh, ways to approach their faith. But it was also a time of great social change when things were moving from an agrarian, feudal kind of society more to cities and, and, and the, the concept of law was, was more developed in the Reformation and, and the whole system of legal justice systems of courtroom and all that were developed at that time, very unlike anything that was around when the Bible was written. And so more and more, this, this Godward theory became more and more associated with, with courtroom imagery. And there became more and more of an emphasis on crime as sin and the necessity of a penalty. And justice came to be seen more and more in terms of punishment and retribution and restitution, which justice is associated with that. But justice also, in the Bible, has to do with reconciliation, restoration, and renewal and being together. Justice goes both ways. Justice sets things straight by fixing what's broken, but also means restoration. But as this theory of atonement developed in the Reformation, it became more and more focused on punishment and retribution. This influenced the understanding then of biblical justice at the time, which I said is not only retribution, but also restoration. We'll get to that in next week's theory. This perspective, this theory, took hold of much of Protestantism and is probably uh, familiar to a lot of you here, and it came to be called, here's a long word, but it's penal substitutionary atonement. Penal simply means penalty, like a penal colony is where people are penalized and pay for their sins in a sense. Substitutionary means Jesus took the penalty, atonement, the saving work of Christ. There's much truth and obvious biblical background for what we see in this theory. But I have to tell you, it has raised questions over the years from biblical scholars, not just questions like, that's weird, I don't think I'll ever be a Christian questions, but is that really everything Scripture says? Certainly Christ died in our place, that's very clear, but was it to an appease an angry God? In other words, and here's the big question that I'll answer next week, <laughs> Was God changed in the atonement? Did God change from a wrathful God to a loving God? Can you even say that God changed? (laughs) So that's one of the questions that stretches it, but we'll look at that. Some will also ask, with the extremes of this view, where is the love? For God so loved the world. Others ask, does this uh, we see this theme in Scripture, but does it line up, and where does it line up with the teachings of Jesus? Jesus who spoke uh, of the love of God. Jesus who expressed unconditional love and grace. Jesus who told the story of the prodigal son where the father is the God figure and the God figure issues no punishment, just grace. How do we square it then with the teachings of Jesus? See, it's more complicated than we thought, right? (laughs) But there is truth in all of it. And it's truth that not only takes care of my individual sin, but it's a truth that can empower our lives and our community of faith. So we're going to dig into this some more in the next few weeks. I'll hit a little bit more about this theory, and next week we'll move to this the human word one of restoration and healing and the love of God that comes there. Two weeks from today, uh, we get a treat. 
Dr. Dennis Edwards, biblical scholar, professor at uh, Northern Seminary, ordained covenant pastor, and good friend. He's here today. Hey, Dennis. We'll preach uh, two weeks from today, uh, looking at this, this, the Satan word focus of the ransom theory, we call it, and it has to do with the victory of Christ. Dennis will bring the word that day. We've been working on this together. It's been fun. And then three weeks from today on Palm Sunday, uh, we will uh, we'll try to tie this back together and, and see what we've learned and how we can answer this question, what happened on the cross. In the meantime, ask what questions you have. Be thinking about this and let me know what questions you have as well. Let's pray and give thanks to God for this gift of life and forgiveness that we have. Lord Jesus, we've gone deeply into some areas and perhaps used some bigger words, and yet, Lord, we know that in some ways our faith is a complex theological mystery, and yet in other ways, the sweet, simple truth that you've extended your grace to us in Jesus, and we can be in relationship with you and know the fullness of life and do your kingdom work because of the work of Christ on the cross. Lord, give us curious minds in these weeks. Give us hearts and minds open to understand what the word says. Speak, Lord, to to me and to Dennis in our study times as we prepare to bring this, that we might help open up the word in ways that we can plumb the depths, the riches of your grace and understand. And may we come through it, Lord, with not only a deeper appreciation, but living our lives in a way that have been touched and changed by your gift of grace and forgiveness. We ask this and we pray it all in your name. Amen.